0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Last week, we talked about Jesus being superior to all the prophets, And this week, we're going to talk about Jesus being superior to the angels. Turning to Bibles, to the book of Hebrews. That's where we're going to be camping tonight. Angels are a fascinating subject. I think one of my favorite stories of angels in the Bible was probably Balaam. In Numbers 22, let me set the stage for you. Moses led a whole bunch of slaves up to two million slaves out of Egypt, and they are slowly working their way towards the promised land, the place that God is going to finally give them rest. And out here in the desert, in the wilderness, at times enemies are coming and attacking them, and they just had this huge victory over the Amorites, but they're camping on the Amorites' neighbor's border, the Moabites' And the Moabite king, his name is King Balak. And he gets really nervous seeing this huge army out there, knowing that they just had this big victory. So he comes up with a plan. His idea is maybe if he jinxes them, maybe if he hexes them, perhaps if he has them cursed, when he goes to battle, they'll lose. So he summons the Moabite seer, the soothsayer, the mystic in his land, and his name was Balaam. And Balaam for a price could predict the future or put blessings on your house or even curse. He dabbled in astrology. He probably dabbled in the cultic magical arts of the pagan religions around. This was Balaam. And so King Balak sent messengers to Balaam and said, we'll give you tons of money if you'll come and curse Israel so we can defeat him in battle. Long story short, Balaam decides to take up the offer. And he mounts his donkey. And he heads down the road towards the Israelites to once and finally see the Moabites cut down the Israelites. Now, while he's on the road, God sends an angel. And that's where things get weird. And he sends this angel to oppose, to be Balaam's enemy. And the angel stands in the road. And the donkey, for some reason, sees it, and Balaam doesn't. Texting and writing or something? I don't know. But the donkey sees the angel, and he sees the angel standing there with his big sword. And before the angel can cut Balaam down, the the donkey veers into a field. And Balaam gets angry and beats the donkey, pulls the donkey back on the road. So the angel goes further down in a place where there's a wall on each side of the road. And this time, when the donkey sees the angel coming, it tries to veer, but there's only a wall, so it crushes Balaam's foot. And Balaam gets off and beats the donkey again. So the angel goes a little further down to a place so narrow that the donkey couldn't turn to the left or the right. And when Balaam and his donkey came up to the angel, the donkey chose to fear the angel more than Balaam's stick, and it laid down on the road. And when it did, Balaam at the top of his fury, he gets off and starts beating this animal until God opens the mouth of the donkey to speak in words that Balaam understood. And the donkey said, why are you beating me? Haven't I been faithful your whole life? And then Balaam's eyes were opened to see this angel standing in the road with sword drawn, prepared to cut him down if he used to go any further against God's people. And the angel isn't just there to be intimidating. The angel is there to deliver a message. And he gives the message to Balaam. I'll let you go. But you only speak the words of God. Nothing more. And long story short, Balaam goes and he gets up there with King Balak looking down over the Israelites on this tall mountain. And what comes out of his mouth is not a curse, but in fact, three different blessings King Balak gets furious at Balaam. So Balaam turns and declares one last prophecy, and it's over King Balak and the Moabites, and it is a curse. And I'll tell you something really cool. Woven into the curse of the Moabites is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. I love how God works. That's a story for another day. Angels, they're weird, they're mysterious beings spoken of in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're dwelling places in heaven, but they have the ability to enter the physical realm. In the books of Revelation and Isaiah, it tries to give descriptions, but human language doesn't quite reach enough to describe them. Angels are sinless. They're fiercely loyal to God. They're immensely powerful. And on the hierarchy of created order, the angels are superior to men and women in every way. The Bible gives very little clear detail about angels. And I would argue that it's because of our fascination with power and with mystery. People, Christians, in the past have even come to the point of worshiping angels. And so I believe the Bible keeps them mysterious for that reason. Now, angel is not actually the name of a being, Angel simply means messenger. We're actually calling them by their job description. And this is what they do. They are carriers of God's word between him and God's people. Now, Jewish tradition had recognized angels as being so powerful that some Christians believed that Jesus was inferior to the angels. Some believed that Jesus was an angel. So if our author is going to argue that Jesus' ability to speak on behalf of God is superior to angels, he's going to have to prove that Jesus is greater than an angel. And that is his argument tonight. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Our author is going to unpack. He's going to pull Scripture. He's going to use the Word of God to defend the Word of God, pulling from the Psalms, 2 Samuel, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Proverbs, all over the place. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's where we start having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Right here, this is the author's thesis statement. Jesus is superior to angels in every way. And what is his argument? It's because... Jesus is not just another heavenly being. He has a different relationship with God. And what's that relationship? He is God's very son. Now right here, you're going to see throughout quotations coming from the Old Testament. And I challenge you, this would be a great thing to go home and do this week. Go through Hebrews 1 and 2, and wherever you see these quotations, look at the citations, if you have them, in the margins of your Bible at the bottom, and go look them up. Because these may be one-liners, but they're coming from a context that's critically important to understand it, that we won't be able to cover tonight. Right here, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 2, is verses 7 and 8. And this is a psalm that's recognized as a psalm talking about this coming Messiah. Speaking of the one who's been prophesied since the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3. It actually goes on. If you're reading Psalm 2, 7 through 8, it says, the Lord said to me, you're my son, singular. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then the second one that we have down here, or again, I'll be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. This is a direct quote from 2 Samuel chapter seven. This is a beautiful story. Let me sum it up for you. David has just built himself, King David has built himself a palace made of cedar. It's beautiful. And yet, God doesn't have a house. There's no temple for the Ark of the Covenant, for God's manifest presence to dwell. And David, out of the love of his heart, calls the prophet Nathan and says, would you ask God, can I build him a house? It's not right that I'm in a beautiful palace in the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence dwells in the tent. And Nathan comes back to David and says, David, God actually turned the tables on you here. God has said, I've never asked for a house. But here's what I'm gonna do, David. I'm going to establish your house. And right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12, it says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. He's gonna be a descendant of yours and I will establish his kingdom. Well, this is pointing directly to Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wait a minute, Solomon's human. He's not gonna live forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So we have a two-layered prophecy here. It's looking towards Solomon, and Solomon will build a temple, but Solomon will not have a throne that lasts forever. He will not be worthy of being God's son by any means. It's looking beyond. And right here in Hebrews, whenever he's quoting this, and he's saying, I will be to him a father, and he'll be to me a son, our author is saying, this wasn't a metaphor, Jesus is God's son. There's a relationship that's different about Jesus, different than any other other heavenly being. We get glimpses in Revelation of these, these crazy creatures of six wings covering their face and covering their feet and flying in the air, creatures made of fire, creatures that look like lightning, these bizarre and strange seraphim. But God doesn't have a relationship with any of them like he does his son. You know, someday my eldest son will be in youth group. He'll be sitting in your seats. That's crazy for me to think about. And whenever he comes, I just had the thought, like, he'll probably have a birthday that lands on a Wednesday. And you know what? I love you guys, but I'm not buying cake and pizza for all of your birthdays. But you know what? When my son has a birthday, and on a Wednesday, we're celebrating. We're having cake and pizza on a Wednesday night here. Why? Because as much as I love you guys, my relationship with him is so different. He's a tier higher in the hierarchy. So why is Jesus superior to angels? Because of his relationship to God. God has never called any of them his son. Verse six, and again, when he, God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a fire. Ooh, this is weird and cryptic. What does he mean by firstborn? He does not mean that this is Jesus's origin, that when he was born from Mary, that's when Jesus began. No, firstborn is Jesus's royal ranking, he is a tier above all of creation. He is the royal heir of all of heaven. And he, our author here is quoting Psalm 89, 26 through 27. The bigger picture is a cry to God for help. It's, it goes like this. He shall cry to me, you're my father and my... I- You're my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And then God says, I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of heaven. Firstborn isn't talking about his birth, it's talking about his rightful ruling station. But what we learn here is that angels worship him. It's idolatry to worship anyone else but God. And if God has appointed angels to worship him, then Jesus is not a man. Jesus is not another angel because only one is worthy of all worship and only one is worthy of worship from angels and that is God Himself. And then He keeps going saying, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. This is being quoted from Psalm 104. And the point that He's making here is that He does not serve. Angels. The angels obey his commands. And in fact, this word right here where it says he makes angels his winds, makes doesn't mean he has them do something. Makes right here, the, the Greek word is to create. He has created the angels to be winds. He has created the angels to be ministers of flames of fire. So he has created the angels and the angels obey him. How can we know that Jesus is superior to angels. You know, I used to work at Academy Sports and Outdoors. I worked in the shoe department. It was fun. And I remember one night, on top of the fun that we usually had, someone puked all over the bathroom. Yeah. And my manager came to me and said, Dom, I need you to clean the bathroom. Okay. Why? Because he's my boss. He's the manager. I'm working here For him, for the store. I'm under his authority. So why is Jesus superior to angels? How can we see that? Because angels serve him. Angels worship him. Verse eight, but the son, but of the son, he says, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Right here, he is quoting another Psalm that is specifically about the coming Messiah. This is Psalm 45, and he's quoting verses six and seven. Who did God promise he would give a throne to? It would be someone who would live and last forever and ever. This descendant of David. The Messiah is God and he's nothing less than God. It says here that he was worthy of the throne because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. Jesus in his his 30 plus years of life on earth lived a perfectly holy life. He loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. He alone lives up to God's standard of goodness, God's standard of righteousness, and he has proved his fitness to reign. And I love right here that it says that God has anointed him. Do you know what Messiah means? It means anointed one. This is specific to one and only one in all of the universe, in all of creation, and it's not to any angels. It's specific to the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is worthy, who is all righteousness, God's son. And then it says, beyond, you've been anointed with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And our author here interprets companions as being the other occupants of heaven. Jackie and I and our kids have a show now. It's a blast. It's so fun that we have all our kids, all ages, and we're all watching the same show together. And it's a baking show. And you have all these kids, like eight years old to 14 years old, and they're baking. And at the end of every show, one kid is declared junior star baker. And then one kid, eliminated. And so we're all like, wait, and we like know all their names. We're like, oh, no got oh we missed them you know just recently we watched an episode and this one kid named Zach this was the kid that he always took this standard and took it up a notch we were always like "Ooh, what's Zach gonna do we knew for sure like this kid was going all the way and they eliminated him and we were all like "What?" I mean the next morning the kids are waking up out of bed I can't believe they eliminated Zach last night and we're like I know this is crazy Because in this competition, Zax failed miserably. He tried to mix chocolate and like chili peppers, and it was weird, and the judges hated it. He did not live up to the standard. He was not cutting it. Jesus stands in front of all of heaven as the only one worthy of all righteousness and goodness, the only one worthy to have the title and the throne of God himself. He is not only morally fit to reign, but he has the power to reign. Let's keep going. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So Jesus did not begin when he was born with Mary. He was there with God in the beginning. John 1.1. And the heavens are the work of your hands. We're talking about Jesus. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment and and change it. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal on both directions of the timeline. When there was creation, Jesus was spinning galaxies, is speaking them into existence, Jesus was setting up the mountains and telling the water where to stop on the seashores. Jesus will still be ruling when all of heaven and earth, the material world, is dissolved into nothingness. Like Second Peter talks about this great uncreation. Jesus is immutable because he's God. Again, he's quoting from Psalm 102. All right, this is the part where I challenge you. I'm gonna phrase one, I'm gonna crack my knuckles and look confident. Phrase two, you crack your knuckles and look confident. You ready for this? I was told two things. One, that this is the most difficult section that we're studying tonight in all of Hebrews, and I'm gonna have a hard time. So, let's go. Second, I was told that this is way over the heads of teenagers, so they're gonna have a hard time understanding it. Crack your knuckles. Let's go. You, Lord, laid the foundation. This is coming from Psalm 102. Right here is clearly talking to God, not specifically the Son. Or, so our author here, is grabbing a verse about God and trying to apply it to the Son. Let's take a look at this in context. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 102. Cut your Bible in half. If you hit Isaiah, go left. Psalm 102. This psalm is a cry for help. Psalm 102, verse 1. Our author here and those who sing this song are crying out to the Lord to be remembered. Verse 1, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And now let's jump forward to verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. All right, so that's us. We're the generations to come. So that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that God, he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, Yahweh looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. Now, The problem that we have is down here in verse 25 through 27, these are the verses that our author is quoting. If you look down at verse 25, you of old laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So our author has grabbed some verses specifically about God and he's trying to convince us that these verses are actually about God's son. So let's go back up to verse 20. I'm glad you have your Bibles with you. He hears the groans of the prisoners to set free those who are doomed to die. Have you heard that language anywhere else? Because it's about to get real. Go right just a little bit to Isaiah 61. Let me tell you a little bit about Isaiah 61. Jesus visited the synagogue their church in his town and he opened up the bible in front of everyone in the synagogue and he began reading this particular chapter in the book of isaiah and then he said this is about me so what do we just read in psalm that god the one who is the creator the foundations of the earth, the God who is hearing their cries. Our, our author, the psalmist right here is crying out, God, do you hear me? You're the creator of all things. Do you hear us? We need someone to set free those who are in prison and doomed to die. And we're not talking about a physical death. We're talking about spiritual death. We're talking about hell. And what does Jesus read as he opens up Psalm 61? Isaiah is referring to Psalm 102, when he writes, the spirit of the Lord God, all caps God, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. This is a messianic Psalm. This is talking about the Messiah to come because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus opens this up. We can read about it in Luke chapter four. And he says right here, guys, this is fulfilled. Because Jesus is the one who's going to break the chains off all of those who are captive, imprisoned, enslaved to sin. All those who will die in their sin to hell. Jesus is the one who sets the captives free. So then let's look forward. Let's go back to our Hebrews chapter 1. And when we realize that we're reading this, this doesn't just apply to God. This applies to the one who fulfills the cry for help, who is there at creation, according to John 1. Jesus is the creator. Through him, all things were made, Colossians chapter 1. So why And how can we know that Jesus is superior to angels? Because he was the creator of all things. So our author now is going to conclude. He has laid out his case. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Our author, right here, deals the final blow. There was never an angel that God has ever said, Sit at my right hand. Again, he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 110. And this psalm is critical because it's the very psalm that Jesus is going to use to defend his Messiahship when he's challenged. I love Jesus. And I love how he likes to pick at people that are struggling, that are self righteous. In Matthew 22, Jesus has been barraged by questions. And then Jesus asks them a question. And Jesus brings up Psalm 110, verse 1, and Jesus says, who do you say that the Messiah is? Whose son is the Messiah? And they answer right. They say, he's David's son. Why? Because of 2 Samuel 7 that we all just read. He's David's son. And Jesus says, okay. Let me pose this to you. Psalm 110.1 says that David says to his Lord that God said to that Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's like this conversation between two persons. There is God speaking to another who David calls his Lord. David exclusively only calls God his Lord. And yet God is speaking to David's Lord, saying, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool, sit at my right hand. And so Jesus is saying, wait a minute. So you're saying that the Messiah is David's son. How could the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? And they're all like, in fact, they stop asking Jesus questions now. They gave up. We can't mess with this guy. He is like bending our brains. And the answer to the question is very simple. Jesus is the son of David in the flesh, and he is the king of kings and the eternal God because he was fully and truly man and fully and truly divine. And that makes Revelation twenty two sixteen perfectly come to pass. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. listen. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is the root of David. David came from him, and he is David's descendant simultaneously. Cracking your knuckles with me? Brain smoking a little bit? It's so fun. Verse 14 in Hebrews 1, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, the angels here are servants of Jesus. They are moving at his command. Their job isn't to rule, but to serve. And we have this really interesting phrase that they serve for the sake of, of those who are to inherit salvation. God knows his people. And God is at work and using angels to fulfill his will and bring his people to himself. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 can be kinda scary because it says that there are demonic forces all around us battling against us. Isn't it good to know that God has appointed angels To defend, to care, to overshadow and protect God's people. Oh, so good. If you go back in 2 Kings chapter 6, you get this another neat story about angels. Elisha and his servant, they're in a city, and the city gets surrounded by the Syrians. Bad, bad people. The Assyrians are not gonna do nice things whenever they come over the walls. And the servant is quaking in his sandals. And Elisha comes to the wall, looks out at the surrounding army, and he says to his servant, have peace. Those who are with us are greater than those against us. And the servant is like, you are crazy. What are you talking about? And Elisha prays a simple prayer, Lord, open his eyes. And when he looks back out, he sees the army that's threatening But then he looks beyond the army and surrounding that army, filling the mountains, were angels and chariots of fire. They were never in danger because God's people were greater than the enemy. It's beautiful. So how can we know that Jesus is superior to angels? Jesus sits in the highest position of power at the right hand of God, and everything is put under his authority. So we come to the purpose, the point, and the warning of his argument. And here's where the rubber meets the road for us tonight, after all of this fun exposition. Let me open up with an analogy. Imagine my son Silas is in the other room, like in the bedroom, and I'm calling everyone to dinner, and I send my daughter Nadia to go get him. And I say, Nadia, go and tell Silas, come to the table, and if you don't come right away, you're going to have a five-minute timeout. Or lose your dessert, whatever. Now, Nadia goes and tells Silas. Now imagine the scenario. We have our messenger. We have the recipient. We have the person whose word it is, mine. And we have a consequence if he does not follow what I've asked him to do. Now with that in mind, let's read these next verses together. So with this in mind, Jesus is superior to angels. His message is is more trustworthy than theirs because he's superior to them. Let's read together. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Okay, so in case any of that went right over your heads, let's change the scenario. I am expecting Silas to be obedient through my messenger or there are consequences. Now, what if instead I went to the bedroom and I leaned in and said, Silas, go to the table or you're losing dessert? Which one has more weight? When it comes from me, right? So our author right here is saying we were able to trust the word of angels. How much more can we put stock in the word of God's son? He's referring to Deuteronomy, a tradition in Judaism that looked at Deuteronomy 33, and they believed that since Deuteronomy 33 says that when God spoke to Moses and gave Moses the law, the Torah, the Old Testament code, that there were thousands of angels with him. So, Jewish tradition believed that, that God used angels to deliver the law to Moses. And that's what our author is talking about here. He's saying, it was in verse 2 For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression to disobedience received a just retribution. So, if they broke the law that was given by angels, they had punishments. God put stock in what he had the angels deliver. But, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, talking about Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So now we're up in the ante. If we could trust what the angel said about the law, how much more can we trust the very mouth of God through Jesus Christ and what he said? And before we had the law on the stake, now salvation itself, the very gospel, is at stake. How much more should we pay attention? How much more should we anchor in so that we don't drift away from the truth of what Jesus says? And on top of that, Jesus' word, coming from the very mouth of God, also had the evidence of miracles. The greatest was that Jesus raised himself from the dead and no one has power over death except God. So the point here is the ultimate and final revelation is Jesus and the warning is what is the punishment if we disregard his message? Our author here is not warning people who have never heard the gospel and he's not warning people that are already saved. He's warning those who have heard truth, but they're still sitting on the fence. There's a story of a prostitute that went and visited her pastor because she said she wanted to be saved. And he asked her all the questions. He walked through the gospel that she was in sin and under the wrath of God, but Jesus has died on the cross to save her from her sin, that if she would repent of her sin and follow him, she would be saved. And she agreed, and they prayed together. And he said, now, you know your book of contacts? Let's take a match to it and burn it up. Separate yourself from your old life, from all those old contacts from that old life. And she said, Wait a minute, hold on. That book, that's worth a lot of money. And he said, let's do it. Let's burn it. You're, you're getting rid of that old lifestyle. That's not you anymore. You're, you're committing yourself to Christ. And she said, I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe this isn't really for me. And so he brought the ultimatum. Is Jesus... Now you're Lord? Or is your lifestyle your Lord? And her answer was this. I don't think I wanted Jesus as much as I thought I did. And she left. Confession is more than agreeing that the gospel is correct. Simply agreeing that the gospel is correct is a comfortable fence with lots of padding and you'll stay there till you die. Repentance is more than a feeling bad about sin. Feeling bad about sin is a comfortable lie like a placebo for an incurable disease. Surrender is more than wearing the team jersey for Jesus and it's a comfortable disguise until the judge strips it away. Salvation is putting your faith in Jesus who died for you. Turning from sin and running towards righteousness, willfully dethroning yourself from being in control of your life and acknowledging that he's in control of your life. This gospel that was spoken by Jesus, the son of God to the apostles, it was written for us. It was written here and it's been delivered to you. Run to salvation. Burn your book and give your life to Jesus if you haven't tonight. I'll give you two challenges. One, in all of these fun little cross references, go look them up, go flip back to the verses that we've been talking about, read them in context, it changes everything. And two, I challenge you to begin to read a gospel. Read the words of Jesus. Get to know him. What did he teach? How does it apply to your life? I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray that right now you are kicking people off the fence because the devil owns the fence. There is no salvation apart from a full baptismal submerging into your grace. Nothing left behind. I thank you, Lord. For your love. I thank you, Lord, for your son. And I thank you for his message that brings salvation. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.